I just wanted to start out. It's funny, like when you're given an opportunity to preach, I must tell you, well, for me, I'm mulled over for a long time, and there are a lot of butterflies that are flying in my stomach right now. And I think the weightiness is not necessarily fear of standing up and speaking to you guys, but more the weightiness of what I, what I believe God's giving a guy to preach. And uh, so this wasn't even part of what I wanted to say, but I wanted to start out like this, just saying, I hope, and my heart, I really felt God just lay this on my heart last night before I went to bed, um, is that what some of what I have to say this morning is pretty weighty. And I want to confess to you as a church that uh, I believe God really laying stuff on my own heart <laughs> and um, just addressing issues in my life. So in no way feel or leave feeling that I've been pointing a finger because you know that old saying when you're pointing a finger, there are three or four fingers pointing back at you. And so this is a word that please hear my heart. I believe it's really from God, but it can come across quite strongly. And I don't want that to be the heart. I want God to do convicting. I want the Holy Spirit to do convicting as he's done in my life as I've had a look at these scriptures. So without further ado, there's a story that I wanted to start out with about a guy called Desmond Doss. And uh, a lot of you might have heard of that name. Who's heard of Desmond Doss? I didn't know that this was the guy's name. Yeah, all the, all the guys putting up their hands. Desmond Doss is, uh, was a corporal in the United States military. It was part of their Pacific campaign against the Japanese in World War II. And uh, there's a movie that's just been made uh, about his, his story in the Pacific Islands uh, called Hacksaw Ridge. And um, I just want to read you guys. It's quite lengthy, but I really didn't think there was much to leave out of this. So I want to read you the citation on his Medal of Honor, which he received in 1945 from Harry Truman, the president of the United States at that time. So, uh, so it says, Private First Class Desmond T. Doss, <clears throat> United States Army Medical Detachment. He was a company... He, sorry, he was a company aid man when the 1st Battalion assaulted a jagged escarpment 400 feet high. As our troops gained the summit, a heavy concentration of artillery, mortar, and machine gun fire crashed into them, inflicting approximately 75 casualties and driving the others back. Private First Class Doss refused to seek cover and remained in the fire-swept area with the many stricken, carrying them one by one to the edge of the escarpment and there lowering them on a rope-supported litter down to the face of a cliff to friendly hands. On 2nd May, he exposed himself to heavy rifle and mortar fire in rescuing a wounded man 200 yards forward of the lines on the same escarpment. And two days later, he treated four men who had been cut down while assaulting a strongly defended cave. Advancing through a shower of grenades to within eight yards of enemy forces in a cave's mouth where he dressed his comrades' wounds before making four separate trips under fire to evacuate them to safety. On 5 May, he unhesitantly braved enemy shelling and small arms fire to, to assist an artillery officer. He applied bandages, moved his patient to a spot that offered protection from small arms fire, and while artillery and mortar shells fell close by, painstakingly administered plasma. I know this is long, but you've got to listen to this because it gets better. Later that day, this is all in the state of a couple of days, guys. We're not going to be doing this in Mexico in case anybody's getting scared, okay? <clears throat> When an American was severely wounded by fire from a cave, Private First Class Doss crawled to him. We had fallen 25 feet from the enemy position, rendered aid and carried him 100 yards to safety while continually exposed to enemy fire. On 21 May, in a night attack on high ground near Shuri, he remained in exposed territory while the rest of his company took cover, fearlessly risking the chance that he would be mistaken for an infiltrating Japanese and giving aid to the injured until he himself was seriously wounded in the legs by the explosion of a grenade. 
rather than call another aid man from cover, he carried for his own he cared for his own injuries and waited five hours before litter bearers reached him and started carrying him to cover. The trio was caught in an enemy tank attack, and Private First Class Doss, seeing a more critically wounded man nearby, crawled off the litter and directed the bearers to give their first attention to the other man. Awaiting the litter bearer's return, he was again struck, this time suffering a compound fracture of one arm. Compound fracture means the bone sticking out of his arm, for those of you that are, I wanted to get a bit gory, okay? Mark loves it. With magnificent fortitude, with magnificent fortitude, listen to this, he bound a rifle stock to his shattered arm as a splint and then crawled 300 yards over rough terrain to the aid station. Through his outstanding bravery and unflinching determination in the face of desperately dangerous conditions, Private First Class Doss saved the lives of many soldiers. They estimate between 50 and 75. His name became a symbol throughout the 77th Infantry Division for outstanding gallantry for above and beyond the call of duty. Doesn't that give you goosebumps? We love those stories, right? And why do we love those stories? Because it resounds with us as humans, right? We are called to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. And um, the interesting thing is that this man was raised a Seventh-day Adventist, and a kind of, as I go into my preach, they're, they're le- raised in a very legalistic, they do things because they keep a lot of the Old Testament commandments, right, by the letter. And yet his parents raised him to be a pacifist. And so this man, as far as I know, wasn't even carrying a rifle. He had nothing to defend himself while he was doing this. And yet he did this. He laid his life down for his brothers and sisters. And so that's just my intro. And the title of my sermon today is, Loving God Culminates in Love for His People. When we're looking at one John, John is, interestingly enough, writing to Christians. So there are other places in Scripture where we see we're instructed to love the world. But in this instance, when I'm referencing loving others, he's referencing us loving brothers and sisters, which are the people, if you look to your left and right, and some of them are not here today. I'd like to start out by reading 1 John 2, verses 7 to 11. And just bear with me. There's so much truth in these Scriptures, guys, that I, that I don't want to leave anything out. Um, I just want to turn there. So 1 John 2, verses 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command in the message you have heard is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. The two things that I see in that scripture in studying it is that the first one is that he says this is not a, this is not a new command. He says this is an old command. This was already established in Jewish culture and Mosaic laws. Look after your brother. Love your brother. Jewish people are very famous for that, looking after each other, having strong community. So he says this is not something that's new to you as previous Jews, now Christians. But then he says, it almost sounds like he contradicts himself in verse 8. He says, but a new command I give to you, love your brother. And I thought, what the heck is he saying here? It sounds like he's totally contradicting himself. But if we look at the reference in verse 8, he says, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him. 
and then you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. That, those two words, the true light, are only used in one other scripture in, in the Bible, and that's in John 1, verses 9, where he's referencing the true light being Jesus. And so what I think John is saying here is he's saying, you guys have had this old commandment, which is Mosaic, and it's all been done under law. It's all the results of fear of consequence or because it was said to be done, right? And we know that they were pretty good at keeping, how many laws were there? 600 and something odd, right? But he says, but now I give you a new command. And he says, why is it a new command? Because something new has come between Mosaic law and what we were doing and what we're doing now. And that something new is Jesus, the true light. And he says, so now we are called to brotherly love, not out of a place of law or consequence or because mom and dad told us to do so, but because of what Jesus has brought for us through the gospel, where he loved us first. And now out of our love for him, we respond, not out of a place of I'm worried I'm going to get whipped, but because I can't do anything else when I'm faced with this love that Jesus has poured out on me. The second thing I see here is he talks about walking around in darkness. And so I thought, I have a, I have a little story to tell you guys, and forgive me if it's not that PC. I don't think it's that bad, but I'll hear from Mike when he gets back. There, was, um, there were four people traveling on a little European train through the Alps. And let's say it was 60 years ago, so the carriages weren't lit, and they were very small and compartmentalized. It was a Frenchman an Englishman, a very attractive young blonde lady, and an elderly lady. I won't tell you in which order they were sitting, but they were sitting kind of very packed into this carriage. And so they were going in and out of these dark tunnels, and the, and the carriage would be plunged into total darkness. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And as they're traveling along, they go into a tunnel, and there was this sound of a face being slapped, and then they came out of the light, and the Frenchman was sitting there rubbing his face. Is Dave Longchamps here? No? Okay, good. Uh, so the Frenchman's sitting there rubbing his face, and everybody's too politically correct because they're all European, and so nobody wants to say anything. And so the old lady's sitting there, and she thinks, I bet you that Frenchman tried to get frisky with that blonde lady, and she slapped him in the dark. And the blonde lady sits there, she says, I bet you that Frenchman tried to get frisky with me and got mixed up between me and the elderly lady, and so she slapped him. And the Frenchman sits there, and he says... I bet you that sleazy Englishman tried to get fresh with the blonde lady, and she got confused and slapped me in the dark. And the Englishman sits there and he thinks, I can't wait for the next tunnel because I want to slap that Frenchman again. (laughs) And so the point I'm trying to make here is that a lot can happen in darkness, and nobody really knows what happened, right? We want to be in the light as Christians, okay? And uh, I don't have anything against English or French people. But I hope Dave Mockett is here because I wanted to get back at him because they just killed us in a cricket series. They, they, they beat the South Africans in this gentlemanly sport called cricket. And so I thought it would be good. But um, uh, So light and darkness. What an incredible analogy by John. He says, if we're not loving brothers and sisters, he says, we're as good as stumbling around in the dark. And who wants to do that? Hey? It's, it's a huge call, guys. Like, he's not messing about. He's not saying, oh, well, you know, you won't have many friends and you might die alone one day. He's like, no, no, you're, you're stumbling around in darkness if you're not loving the way Jesus has called us to love. He says, you are to love so that you can walk in light. He says, uh, so loving fellow believers results in us living in the light, which represents what is good and true and holy and results in all the spiritual fruits we read about in the New Testament. 
effective Christian lives, is kind of what I would sum it as. While darkness results in what is evil or false. My second point, real love results in earthly opposition, but eternal reward. I want to read this to you guys because I actually read it as a footnote in one of the commentaries and it really really stood out to me. It says, In the Bible, hatred and love as moral qualities are not primarily emotions but attitudes expressed in actions. Let me read that again. In the Bible, hatred and love as moral qualities are not primarily emotions but attitudes expressed in actions. And as a Westerner, I didn't see it like that. I read it as like, oh... You know, if I hate, you know, hating someone is kind of, I really just, I just don't like the way he is. What John's saying is, when you hate a brother, it's going to result in an outworking. Hatred results in murder. And just as much, loving has to result in action. We always think about the hate, well, I'm not murdering anybody, but are you loving anybody that it actually results in action? Or do we rely on, as I do sometimes, this fuzzy, warm feeling when I come together on a Sunday, it's great, you know? I, oh, it's just wonderful, you know? I give Mark a hug and, you know, it kind of boosts my ego, and then we walk out off to church on a Sunday, and, and that's it. It never results in action. And he's addressing that too. He's not only addressing murder. Um, so I had always looked at these types of scriptures solely from an emotive point of view. And Paul's, uh, Paul, John is calling us to something greater. He's saying, guys, he says, this has to result in action. And if we're not careful, it can, it can result in terrible action, right? So let's read uh, 1 John 3, verses 11 to 24. This is the second part of the scripture. It's also quite lengthy, guys, but there's just so much in it. eh? This is the message you heard from the beginning. Now, this is the other thing that's quite cool. Is this, so we're jumping through three main scriptures, but if we, as we read through them, you'll see the same, the same topics and a lot of the same things coming through. And for my, Mark actually pointed out to me, he said, for the Hebrew writers, they kind of would do this, right? They'd, they'd think about one thing, and then they'd move on to another topic, and then they'd move on to another topic, and then they'd come back to the initial topic. And for Greek-trained minds, like most Westerners, I'm like, what the heck? You know, Unless somebody puts it together for me that's linear, I can't see it. And then when I started to look at these three scriptures, you see him re-emphasizing things. So listen to this. This is the message you heard from the beginning, right? That's something that we heard in the previous. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This is then, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him everything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he Lives, loves, he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. 
The first thing I want to draw out of that is that our love for one another does not result in fame or fuzzy feelings. Or He says it results in the world hating us. Because it's totally counterculture. It's totally counter for me to think of laying down my time or my life for anybody else. Because the world tells us, the society we live in, is that you are the most important person. You deserve that new truck. You do. You deserve that new truck. There's nobody like you. You know how hard you work? You work really hard. And that's what the world keeps bombarding us with. That guy's not worth, he's not worth you laying down your time for him. He doesn't work as hard as you. That's what we're being bombarded with all the time. That's what I'm being bombarded with all the time, I, I, I confess. My time is very, very important, way more important than Russell Eels's. Well, it probably is, but I, I'm just kidding. But you remember, you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love. For one another, because it defines us as Christians. Because there is nowhere else, there is no other faith on the planet that calls of this for its believers, that we lay down sacrificially our lives for one another. And the church in this time were emulating that. That's why they changed the known world in the early few centuries, because they emulated this. They were willing to lay down their lives for each other. And it resulted in them having to swim upstream, as it were, because it was totally counterculture to a Roman thought process at that time as well. It's not new 21st century stuff. The second thing is that the result of our love for each other, John says, is that we pass from death to life. And I struggled with that. If you look at verse 14 and 15, I'm going to read it again to us. We know that we have passed from death to life. Because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal uh, life in him. And it's funny, I'm, I'm so grateful I get to spend time with Mark before I read. I'm so grateful for you guys I get to spend time with Mark Manfredi before I prepare a preach. Because in my spirit, I was fighting that. I thought, no, 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 he can't, he can't be talking about salvation. He can't be talking about salvation. It must, be a, it must be, he's probably referencing life on earth. If you want to have a full, happy Christian life, if you want to reach what God's got for you, love your brother. I don't see that. I see him saying that the fruit of us walking out our salvation with Jesus is loving brothers and sisters. And I think John is questioning our salvation if those fruits aren't there. And that made me very uncomfortable if I'm honest. And he says it again in 1 John 4, verses 7 to 8, and we'll read that through again. Pretty harsh, man. I'm getting goosebumps reading this because I know that there's a lot of things that God's been pinpointing in my life. Am I loving brothers and sisters like this? Is it reflecting my salvation and my walk with Jesus? Because if it's not, we've got to make adjustments, guys. Think about this. A murderer forces someone to lay down their life as they're not willing to have their right to take second place, right? He comes into your house, he wants your TV, and so he kills you because he's not going to allow your, your needs to come before his, right? And what does Jesus, what is, what is Jesus call us to do as Christians? He calls us to lay down our lives willingly for other people, that there's no force involved in that. No one, he's not forcing us. He's saying, look at me, look what I did, and because of what I did for you, I want you guys to do the same for others. And the others are here. He's talking about brothers and sisters, right? It can, be, it can be very easy for us to think, yeah, well, you know, Joseph, I'm really nice to him when I go fill my tank up with gas and I say, bless you, brother, and I love you. He's not talking about the unbelievers. He's talking about people that are believers here. There's a call to action amongst us. My third point, 
True love is practical. 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18, we've read it. I'm going to read it again. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. I said it before, but I need to say it again. Is This is an impossibility. It is a total impossibility for anybody to do. And I think my tendency is already to start putting laws on my life. Okay, I'm going to love so-and-so. I'm going to make sure that every Wednesday night we have these people over and we're going to love them. We're going to see how we can bless them. And, and automatically that's kind of how I start thinking for me. And if you're like that, that's not what he's saying. I think when we start to live like this, when we choose to live like this, God brings people into our lives. There are instances where the Holy Spirit will show you in your life, this is an instance where you need to lay your life down for this person, right? And so I think as we're in tune with God, as our relationships are developing with him, this is something that becomes intuitive for us. It's like, wow, I see this brother in need. And the Holy Spirit starts to prompt our hearts, and I've got to lay my life down. I've got to lay my life down for this guy in this instance, right? So please don't ever leave here hearing this legalistic thing. As Christians, we've got to ba 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 because that's not at all the heart of Jesus. Does that come through clearly? I hope so. Folk, I believe we choose to do this and have to ask God to help us with this as it's totally contrary to our human nature. There are three practical ways that I see him, things that I think he's outlining here for us. The first is that John calls us to lay down our lives. We live in an incredibly egocentric and uh, selfish world. I sat preparing this sermon and I thought, I honestly think that I'm the most important person in the world. Really, I do. Sometimes even more than my wife. My wife will attribute to that. She's saying amen quietly. But I thought, God, I do. I think I'm the most important person in the world because the world tells me that I am. He tells you, they tell you that you are. And it's totally contrary to what the Bible says. Are you egocentric? Do you think of others first? Are you willing to lay your life down for others? The second thing he says is generosity with our material possessions. Not that I have to, I want to. And the other thing that I thought about is, are we only willing to give out of a place of overflow in terms of our finances? Or are we willing to give out of a place of need sometimes because someone's need is greater? Love, this is the third thing that he says here, is love with actions, and we've touched on actions, but then he also goes on to say love in actions and in truth. And it's so awesome when you get to study for a preach because I never saw that either. And I think what he's trying to say there is he's saying loving in truth means when we're walking alongside like this, we've got to be truthful with each other as brothers and sisters because we're not loving each other if we're not. Now, there's ways to bring across truth, and don't hear the harsh side of it, but when we're, when I've heard, I think Dudley Daniel preached this, he says, once you've built a bridge of relationship, depending on how strong that bridge is, is how strong you can bring the weight of truth across that bridge. So here, this side of it too, right? But when you've got a weighty bridge between you and a brother, which we should have in our context, when Russell and I, when I see something in Russell's life, it's not out of a condescending, horrible heart to say, oh, Russ, you've got to fix that, brother. It's not Russ. I see this in your life, bro, and I want to see you reach what God's got for you. Can I highlight this to you, Russ? And if he takes it or not. But I'm walking in truth, and that's what John's calling us to do. Are we doing that, folk? Who are you accountable to? Who are you building close relationship with in our, in our community that can have those words with you? Who are you asking to speak into your life? 
I'm challenged on that. Who am I letting speak into my life? Darren, your attitude stinks. Somebody already told me they don't like my shirt today. I mean, wonderful. I know now, now that I'm preaching up here. But those, those kind of things is, are we allowing people to speak truth into our life? Bro, I see you're on this track. Where you been? We miss you. Not because we want you here so we can get your tithe and have you work and volunteer. Because God will do that in our hearts already when we see Jesus. That's what it's about. We want to see you guys. I want to see all of us. I want to see me reach what God has made for me. That should be our, that should be our call. Walking in truth with each other, guys. My final point, you'll be glad to hear, is real love brings confidence and completion. 1 John 4, verses 7 to 19. This is our last scripture we're going to read through. So it's verses 7 to 19. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. Among us, he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This wasn't part of my preach, but I was listening to Ravi Zacharias preach. You know that? Can I, it's just a quick diversion. Do you, know, do you know when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees about paying taxes? And he tells them, what does he say? He says to the Pharisee, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You all know that, right? And he doesn't complete, he doesn't really complete himself. But if he says, whose who's impression is on that coin? And they say Caesar's. And I think, well, this is Ravi's, Ravi's knowledge, Ravi Zacharias. And so I just, this struck me. He said, and whose impression is on you? So when he says, you cannot love God if you can't love your brothers, because you haven't seen God, because nobody's seen God, right? But our, we carry the image of the invisible God. And so if we can't love each other where we are a portion or partially a reflection of God, I was like, wow, I think that's what he's saying here, is that it's a, we are partial reflections of this God. And if we can't love the partial, how the heck can we love the, the real deal, right? We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. This is the thing I want to highlight. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect fear drives out, a perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. See the old covenant? It was out of fear, it was out of consequence, it was out of law. That's why the Jews obeyed. He's saying, there's none of that anymore, because you have perfect love from Jesus. So we are Responding out of a place of love, right? Not of fear. And the main point I was trying to make there is this confidence. So let me get to that. A confidence in our salvation. If you look at the end of, you don't have to turn there, but if you're making notes, 1 John 3, verses 19 to 20, he's saying, when your hearts doubt whether you're saved, and I believe that happens to us. I mean, it happens to me, so I hope it happens to you guys. But sometimes I doubt, like, am I really, am I really saved? Well, I don't as much anymore, but I know when I was kind of a junior Christian, I used to think, maybe I should just give my life to Jesus one more time just to make sure. 
When your heart doubts that you're saved, if you're still in that place, and if you get into that place, he's saying here yeah, the confidence that you have is based on this outflowing because this is an impossible thing to do if we're not rooted in Jesus. And that's where our salvation lives is us being rooted in Jesus. So when we're rooted in Jesus and we're loving difficult people, I'm looking at the front row especially, <laughs> impossible tasks, not these guys or my wife, but that end and this end here. He says that's how you can be confident in your salvation because it is totally contrary to culture. We don't see that happening anywhere else. When you're walking in there, you can be confident. I am a child of God. I am in relationship with the Savior of the universe. And as a result, I can love this bunch of ragamuffins. Confidence and completion. You know, there's, um, I'm not going to get into it a whole bunch because I'm kind of running out of time. But there was a, there's a, there was a second and third century uh, uh, train of thought that came about called Gnosticism. And that was already starting to creep into the church. And so some scholars believe that's why John was addressing all these issues. It was in, in kind of a, a challenge on the Gnostic thought process. And what the Gnostics, they thought a lot of things that were weird and wonky. But one of the things that they were about was spiritual pursuit between you and a higher spiritual being, or God. And it was all about you attaining more knowledge and growing in your relationship with God. All about you. And what does John do in this? He says, that's good in a way. We have to have this vertical relationship. We have to be pursuing this with God. But if it's not resulting in a horizontal overflow, that love is not complete. That's what he's saying. The completion of God's love for us is reflected in our love for each other as brothers and sisters. Gnosticism and that thought process, and we don't really talk about Gnosticism anymore, but I thought about my own life, and I thought, wow, I live like that a lot. It's about me and my relationship with God. What can I get out of this? What can I get out of this? What are you guys going to give me? I want more head knowledge. I want to become a super well-built, supernatural Christian, what can I get out of this? And he's saying, that's not what it's about. It's not about this one-on-one with you, Jesus, and you becoming a holy Joe. He's saying, that's got to result in an outworking in our, in our communities, right? Uh, I also just had it as Lone Ranger. I mean, I've heard that used so many times. I grew up in the church, but that's Lone Ranger Christianity. It's about me and God, and you know, I just shoot truth at Nate once in a while, and I Shoot, you know, beach. I just shoot beach down once in a while, and I walk, you know, and it's, it's all about me and God and my development. Guys, that's not what He's calling us to. That's not what He's calling us to at all. All right. So my conclusion, kind of, um, I started with my conclusion and just my saying to you guys that honestly, I think God brings preachers like topics across a preacher's path to deal with issues in his own life. But I want to encourage you guys, I think as we sit here this morning, I, I can't believe for a minute that God hasn't laid this on my heart and that there's nobody here that's struggling with that. But even if it is, it's been a really good opportunity for me. <laughs> but I want to encourage you guys, if the Holy Spirit's pointing his finger on areas of your life where you know, you know because you know your heart's palpitating faster and might because you have an arrhythmia or something like that, but for the most part, for the most part, your heart's beating faster because it's the Holy Spirit prompting you, Okay. Please respond to that, guys. Respond to that. Don't let this go by because when we do this and when we do this correctly, we'll change the world, not for our sake, not for Oceanside's sake, but for the King's sake. And when we stay, you know what? We did a thing in, um, I'll never forget, when we, I think we were just coming on to eldership, but we did a Skype thing with Dudley Daniel. 
as leaders. And he said to us, you know what, guys? He says, this is a guy that's mid-70s now. He's, he's led huge churches. He's been led the apostolic team. He said, you know, what, you know what you need to do to stay in this for the long run? And I thought, I better take note because this guy's been around a long time. He's an incredible man of God. He said, you need to have your eyes on Jesus. He says, if our eyes on Jesus, we don't become disillusioned with the church. We don't become disillusioned with each other because we're going to disappoint each other. Church people are going to disappoint you all the time. I'm looking at the front row again. Um, <laughs> but that's the truth. How many Christians do we hear burnt out because we're not loving each other? Because why? We're not rooted in Jesus. So these things can rub us the wrong way, right? When we're rooted in Jesus, when I see myself in reflection to Jesus and how he loved me, how he died a terrible death for me, I cannot help but love you guys. Or try and start working at it at least. <laughs> okay, so um, can I pray for us? And then I think I'm going to land, as they say. Look, God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are, in, are about the business of bringing us to a place to resemble your son. Look, God, that you're not happy with us sitting in the status quo, that you tell us you're refining us like gold, so that one day when you come back, the chaff will have already been sorted out. And so we ask you, Lord God, that as you've, uh, as you've brought your word, I pray that you would highlight areas in our lives that we would respond to you, Lord Jesus, that this would not be a nice word or kind of funny and he was semi-eloquent in an accented kind of way, but that this would be truth, Lord God, that would come to the right people at the right time, that this truth would find fruitful soil, Lord God, that we would see a change in our midst, that we would start to love each other the way you're calling us to love each other out of an overflow of our relationship with you, Jesus. We want to change the world for you. We want to show people that they need relationship with you, Jesus. We're all about your glory. We're all about your kingdom coming in this place. And we love you. We declare we love you this morning, and we thank you for your interest in relationship and walking with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everybody.